where liberty is our mission. Today is Friday, January 11th, 2013. This is podcast number 258, and my name is Ben Stone. Now, you, if you were listening yesterday, you might be expecting an interview today with Max Abramson, but that didn't happen. We, uh, Between Max and myself, we had a, a planned to have Max come back on the show. He was on the show about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, and um, he talked about his uh, situation that he had at his, um, you know, his arrest and how he was treated and so forth. And um, and we, we had planned on him coming back on the show today, well, actually the interview being yesterday for today's broadcast, and uh, and he would give us an update on what happened, sort of uh, an overview of what he's had to face over the last year and where the case stands and so forth. But and through a series of first software interference and then interference by the weather, um, we weren't able to get a, a uh, an interview recorded yesterday. So we're going to shoot for it over the weekend. We're going to try to get the... Uh, the, the interview recorded over the weekend, and, and we'll try to have it up uh, next week sometime. And this is, it's a good time to mention this. This is one of the reasons why I attempt to, I'm not always successful, but as much as possible, I attempt to put um, in, in the terminology that I use in reference to the future, I try to never speak of the future in absolute terms, such as tomorrow I will go to the store, and tomorrow I will do this, or tomorrow I will do that, because uh, as a human, I have no control over the future. There are so many different situations and events that can take place that uh, that I can't say with any absolute certainty anything about the future whatsoever. Now you can you can uh, you know watch trends. You can sort of analyze things that have happened in the past, and understanding that you can make assumptions about the future. But uh, but but I can't speak in any absolute terms about the future because I don't I don't have knowledge of the future, and uh, you know. This is one of the things that fascinated me about Quakerism was their devotion to truth and their understanding. I've talked about this before, about uh, the testimony of, of uh, how a Quaker views the word testimony. And um, uh, I suppose this is as good a time as any to, to t- touch that topic again. Growing up in uh, being raised by Baptists in Baptist churches, and I, I love my family, and I have you know no problem with people who are Baptist. I'm not attacking any Baptist or anything like that. I'm just simply showing a contrast here between the way I was raised in Baptist, Baptist churches and the Quaker view, and specifically on this word testimony. In a Baptist church, or at least the you know, and there are lots of flavors of Baptist churches, but in the churches that I grew up in. 
there would often be a time, usually in the beginning of the service or near the end of the service, where there would be the opportunity to give a testimony, to testify. And according to the local, you know, local customs, either a person would just randomly stand up right at their seat where they, where they were, you know, in a pew or a chair or whatever, and they would begin talking out loud to the rest of the congregation, and they would say things like, oh, the Lord blessed me because, you know, uh, my cow didn't die or whatever. Uh, you know, the, I had terrible things were happening with my finances, and I prayed about it, and the church prayed about it, and, and now everything is better. And testimony would be words spoken in a situation like this someone would get up in the middle of the service well maybe not the middle like i said the beginning or the end they would get up during the service and they would speak and they would give their their testimony they would testify sometimes in some churches they would actually have a microphone up close to the front and people would walk up voluntarily and speak to that microphone so that everybody in the congregation could hear them and they would say why they love God or what God has done for them or why other people should attend their church or whatever. They would give their little speech. That was the Baptist understanding of uh, of a testimony when I was growing up. But as I began to understand the Quaker view of the same word, it's much different. Uh, to the Quaker, a testimony is not standing up and speaking to testify of your of your of truth to for me to testify of truth is not done by me saying i like the truth or i try to tell the truth or anything like that that for me as a quaker the testimony of truth my testimony of truth is to live truth and to express truth in in uh, any time that I'm speaking, and um, the more fanatical I can uh, adhere to that, then the better my testimony of truth is. So, for instance, if uh, I've used the I, li- I like to use the boat comparison. So, uh, if uh, if you're going to buy a boat from me and you say, well, what about this boat? Is it really uh, you know you wanting two hundred dollars for this boat? Is it worth two hundred dollars? And I tell you, oh, it's a great boat. You're going to love this boat. You're going to have hours of fun with this boat. It's a great boat. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this boat. You should buy this boat. And so you give me 200 bucks. I give you the boat. You take it out to the lake. It's got a leak, and it sinks. And you're like, that guy lied to me. This boat is no good. It has a leak. Well, my testimony is of, is of nothing. It's of no value because... What I've practically, what I've shown you with practicality is that uh, that my words are meaningless. I will lie to you to sell you my boat. Now, um, it doesn't matter how many times I tell you that I'm honest. It doesn't matter how many times that I stand up and hold a microphone and tell you how I love honesty and I love truth and I'm committed to truth. If I deceive you and sell you a boat that has a hole in it, um, telling you that the boat is good and it's a good boat and you're going to enjoy it, then it doesn't matter what words I've used. My actual testimony is in the life that I lead, not in the words that I speak in public. And this goes back to, uh, well, 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 let's not dwell on this too long. So uh, so what brought me into this long spiel about, about uh, testimony? Well, uh, when I speak about the future, I try whenever possible to to put disclaimers on the sentences. So, for example, I just now said, when I speak of the future, whenever possible, I put disclaimers. I just put a disclaimer on that, because sometimes I forget and don't put a disclaimer. 
Um, so in my speech, whenever possible, if I can, um, if I can be as accurate as I, as I know that is possible for me to be, then, then I seek that. But I, but I try not to be, I try not to say things that wedge me into a position that if I find out later I was wrong, or if I find out later that things can't happen that way due to unforeseen circumstances, then uh, then then I don't want to make it appear as though I lied about something. So, for instance, if I say, like yesterday, uh, I say we're going to try to have Max Abramson on the on the prod, on the podcast. Well, we did try, we made those efforts, but it didn't happen. So that's it's better for me to say we're going to try this than for me to say as an absolute, A, B, and C will happen because I don't control the future. That was a really long disclaimer to say that Max is not on the show because we had a downpour and the, and the noise from the rain was so loud that he couldn't hear me and I couldn't hear him. But anyway, uh, so I rambled on for like eight minutes, ten minutes about about the word testimony or testify. Okay, so anyway, so Max, we're going to try to get Max on the show and uh, and I'll continue putting out disclaimers on everything that I say about the future whenever possible. Uh, I did now, uh, taking this in a totally different direction, I saw a um, uh, New York Times article that Mayor Bloomberg, so-called Mayor Bloomberg, see I'm not even being a good Quaker there, uh, Quakers do not use titles of honor that are bestowed upon men by other men, so I have no reason to call Bloomberg the thief Bloomberg. I should. Uh, I have no reason to call him mayor because that's just a title put upon him by himself and by men, and it has no actual authority. So, uh, so I try not to use titles like that, even though sometimes I foul up and do it. But anyway, the thief Bloomberg, um, the tyrant Bloomberg, has decided that there's too many powerful prescription drugs being given out at uh, hospital emergency rooms. Just willy-nilly, just giving those prescription drugs out to people from the hospital emergency rooms. So he's cracking down on hospitals, on the amount of uh, uh, you know of pain uh, medication that hospitals can give out now. Uh, in emergency rooms, so somebody get you know gets their leg chopped off or whatever, and they're in the emergency room and they're in tremendous amounts of pain. Bloomberg has decided that he knows better than the doctors, better than the nurses, better than the professionals. Bloomberg knows how much pain medication people should be given, so Bloomberg is going to dictate to hospitals in New York City uh, how much pain medication that they can give to their patients, and somehow. The residents of New York City are not um, hanging him by the heels on a light post in the middle of the city and taking swings at him with plastic bats, uh, not not in order to kill him, but just to torment him as long as possible. Some For some bizarre reason, the residents of New York City are not doing this to Bloomberg. For some reason, the residents of New York City have not covered him in tar, I should have said dipped him in tar, covered him in feathers, tied him to a rail, and drug him out of town and thrown him into the, into the river. For some bizarre reason, the people of New York City have not reacted to Bloomberg in a logical fashion, in a civilized fashion. For some bizarre reason, the people of New York City 
tolerate this tyrant, this tyrant that will tell you that no matter how badly you're injured, no matter how badly you're in pain, no matter what levels of pain you might be facing, and no matter how qualified your doctor is, Bloomberg, the tyrant, the thief, knows more about your medical condition than you or your doctor or your nurse or your other medical professional. And that tyrant, Bloomberg, has decided that you don't need those pain medications. Isn't that wonderful? There's actually a reason to leave New York City and go to New Jersey now if you're injured. Uh, again, I, I, don't, I don't understand why people tolerate this kind of nonsense from government. This, this myth that somehow government is a good idea and somehow, you know, a tyrants like Bloomberg can make decisions and put them down upon people. Uh, I just, it, it baffles my mind when I think of these things. Uh, the uh, and that's kind of runs in line with what I was talking about in yesterday's podcast. I I'm, I referred to two other medical professionals that have to deal with this kind of nonsense, and I talked about how socialism is the actual core of this, you know, the root problem here. Of course, it's the state, but uh, but the state is based on socialism. All governments in the world are based on socialism. You know, if you get right down to the core. The other thing I, I mentioned was. Um, uh, the definition, uh, how Wikipedia has a clear definition of socialism and a clear uh, statement of it, but their definition of libertarian uh, is, is a little wishy-washy. I don't re actually. I should have probably listened to my recording yesterday and, and refreshed my memory on this. I don't really recall if I actually read from Wikipedia or not, so I want to do that real quick today. And if, even if I did yesterday, it won't hurt to to repeat it because it's it's pretty good to to hear this stuff. So from Wikipedia, socialism. Socialism is an economic system characterized by social ownership of the means of production and cooperative management of the economy and the political philosophy advocating such a system. Now, I do have one little problem with this uh, definition. You see this regularly with dictionaries and encyclopedias and stuff. So you're going to define socialism, and you say socialism is an economic system characterized by the social ownership of the means of production. Well, you know, I think if you're going to use, if you're going to define socialism, you shouldn't use the word social as part of the definition. That's like saying uh, an aircraft. If you're going to describe what an aircraft is, then you probably shouldn't say an aircraft is a craft for the air. You should probably say, well, it's it's a it's a machine that's built so that you can, um, uh, you know, uh, defeat the forces of gravity by using lift and thrust. And I, I mean, there's different ways of saying it without saying an aircraft is a craft for air. Um, so, so if you're defining socialism, and, and a and a critic of what I'm saying might say, well, uh, you know, you could just go on Wikipedia and fix it. Yeah, I could, you know, but I'm awful lazy. So I'd rather just complain about it and let somebody else fix it. But but that's just a pet peeve. I can't fix everything in the world. But it, actually, it is a pretty good uh, definition of socialism. An economic system characterized by social ownership of the means of production and cooperative management of the economy. Some people will say, well, no, we don't. our government is not socialism. Well, yeah, it is, because it's, uh, uh, you know, there's a social ownership of the means of production. Um, in, that, in the case of the United States, in the current model that we have, we have um, the, the, the entire monetary supply, the, the monetary, um, n not, just, uh, not just the monetary supply, but things like interest rates 
and uh, inflation and all these things are controlled by the Federal Reserve. Well, the Federal Reserve is a private corporation. Yes, that is true. But the Federal Reserve is also an actual uh, part of the state in the sense that um, it exists because the government gives it per- permission to exist. There is a, a couple of sets of documents issued by the government that allow the Federal Reserve to exist. Therefore, the Federal Reserve exists at the bidding of the government. So even though it's separate from government in a sense, it is entirely dependent upon government for its existence. So so we have a system currently where the primary means of production, and that would be the money supply and interest and inflation, the primary means of production is socially controlled. It is controlled by a, a socialist system. And then the other part of that is that a cooperative management of the economy, cooperative, working together, a cooperative management of the economy. Well, our economy is called a mixed economy because it is a combination of private actors attempting to interact in the, in the market and, um, and socialist actors uh, attempting to manipulate the market for their own gains or for whatever their purposes are. So this is what a cooperative management of the economy is. It literally is the, the type of government that we have currently in America today. It's, it leans more towards fascism than towards communism, but either way, it's still socialist. So, so that's the definition in Wikipedia of socialism. And, um, and then libertarian in uh, Wikipedia, libertarianism is, uh, is defined by Wikipedia as the group of political philosophies which advocate minimizing coercion and emphasizing freedom, liberty, and voluntary associations. And then it goes on to say, libertarians generally advocate a society with a greatly reduced state or no state at all. And then they put their disclaimer, there is no consensus on the precise definition of libertarianism. Now, I think most libertarians would be happy if you just left the first line only and didn't put the rest. If you just said, libertarianism is the group of of political philosophies which advocate minimizing coercion and emphasizing freedom, liberty, and voluntary association. I think most libertarians all across the spectrum would be happy with that if you just left it there. But then they, you know, in, a, in an attempt to appease uh, the, two, the two major branches of libertarianism, they put the next line, libertarians generally uh, advocate a society with a greatly reduced state or no state at all. Well, that didn't really, it's, it's almost unnecessary for the, for the definition. Um, and then to say, well, nobody really knows what, you, there's, no, there's no consensus. Well, you know, uh, libertarianism does not require a consensus, a cooperative management of the word. Libertarianism does not need a, a social ownership of, of the word in order to define itself. Libertarianism, if, if you look at what, you know, the leading um, influences on libertarianism are, and, and I'm, I'm, trying, I'm not trying to upset any Rand followers here, but you would, in order to do that, you need to leave out uh, definitions given by Ayn Rand because she, by her own definition, was not a libertarian. So if you set aside all Ayn Rand definitions of libertarian that people have come up with after her death, 
And uh, realizing that the Cato Institute, another major aspect of libertarianism, is now pretty much controlled by the Ayn Rand people. So then you step away from all of that, and you're left with um, people like Murray Rothbard. You're left with people like um, L. Neal Smith. You're, I mean, there's a whole variety of very prominent libertarians, Ron Paul, that you could still fall back on. And, and get a, a defined, um, uh, a, a good definition of libertarianism. And it would all fit within that first line that Wikipedia offers to us without saying there's no consensus, without washing it out and saying, well, those crazy libertarians, they don't know what they want anyway. This kind of falls back on the flaw that many libertarians have fallen into where they, where they try to explain libertarianism by saying, well, well, we're kind of socially... Uh, liberal but fiscally conservative. Well, that makes you sound wishwashy. It makes you sound like you don't really have a solid understanding. When in fact, the so-called conservatives and the so-called liberals are the ones that have the wishy-washy foundation. They have no real way of defining what they are. We have a real way of defining what we are. We are opposed to coercion and theft. We we emphasize our desire for freedom. And this is ex expressed most clearly in the zero aggression principle. Uh, no aggression is acceptable, is morally acceptable. And our, uh, our belief in the right of property. Uh, the entire libertarian philosophy can b be boiled down to the non-aggression or the zero aggression principle and the, and the right of property, the belief in the right of property. And there's not really a need to have a consensus on it. You do, do we have a consensus, a consensus on what the definition of iron is? Well, of course not. Everybody knows it's already defined in one particular way, and we can do the same with libertarianism. Okay, when I get back from the break, we're, I, I want to talk more about uh, socialism and give a little bit clearer view of that. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy, and Amazon has great prices, and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give Badquaker a tiny portion of the purchase. It won't cost you any extra, but you'll be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial break. Uh, now, I was talking about how, uh, well, really how important words are in understanding, in communicating things. And I've talked about this, I may have talked about this yesterday, but really, you know, uh, our ability to use words to communicate with one another sets us apart from uh, from all other animals. The, the ability to, and there may be other things too, somebody might argue that humans have souls and animals don't or that, but that's all in a theological uh, realm. If you just look in the practical realm, why is it that you know that dogs don't organize themselves or cats don't organize? It's a good thing cats don't have advanced languages. Let's just say it that way. Let's just leave that whole topic as that. It's a good thing that cats don't have uh, you know complex language. But now you know most mammals um, and certainly birds have complex languages. They just don't have the level of complexity that humans have. So if you've spent much time watching something like, um, well, let's say squirrels, I talk about squirrels a lot, 
and I and I get ribbed a little bit that my my friend Michael Dean and I uh, laugh about this pretty frequently because old men have a tendency to to watch and feed and communicate with squirrels for some odd reason. And uh, and that's one of the many interests that both Michael and I share is our, our fascination for watching and feeding and playing with squirrels. But squirrels have uh, an, a very complex language, and they can communicate uh, a lot of information to one another. They, you know, they can communicate if there's danger coming, if the danger is coming from the sky in the form of a hawk or something like that. They can uh, communicate whether it's something, the danger is something like a cat or if the, if there's a human walking around in the woods. There are ways that they can communicate with each other, not only using the chirps and the barks and the, and the weird little sounds that squirrels make, but also uh, just things like the twitch of a tail, the quick, the quick twitching of a tail in a specific pattern, um, transmits information between squirrels that they uh, that they can um, they can do that without making any noise and drawing any attention to where they're located, and and squirrels are really intelligent. Uh, they know when you're looking at them, and and they and they really don't like it when you make direct eye contact with a squirrel. It makes them very uncomfortable, and in the same sense. A squirrel will almost never make direct contact, direct eye contact with you. He'll observe you. He'll watch you. He'll even if he's really friend with, friendly with you, squirrels that you can feed by hand and so forth. They will rarely go eye to eye with you because in the animal world, um, that's kind of a threatening gesture, and and they really don't like to be. Uh, you know, the old folks, the old bikers and stuff. We used to say, "Don't don't eyeball me." Uh, because because the in in a in a in in body communications that can be taken as a threat or it, between male and female it can be taken as a sort of like a come on so uh so squirrels you know are are very um they they have a very complex language but yet they don't have words like we have so they can't you know we can almost uh well we can make up whole new concepts just by putting together different combinations of words well most animals don't have that ability um i think maybe some of the research on whales might indicate that they probably have the highest uh, other than humans they probably have the highest capability of making up things like that there are uh, whale songs that they've found um, uniquely uh, invented, or, or uh, you should say, authored. In uh, by in specific case, I'm talking about. There was a whale song that was recorded off the coast of um, uh, Australia. I, I believe it was even the western coast of Australia, if I recall the story correctly. And it was just a, a little bit of time until this this song sort of caught on in the whales, um, you know, top forty hits or whatever. And uh, more and more whales started singing this specific song, and it moved uh, in popularity. The song itself moved across the ocean to eastern Australia and up into the Pacific, and eventually this song was sung by whales all the way in Alaska. Uh, and, and it was like, it was like uh, the latest tune that was catching on, and whales were singing it all over. Well, we don't know what that means. We don't know what they were communicating in the song. We don't know if it was just a pleasant song to hear. We don't. We don't know. You know what they were doing with it. It may have been. Uh, it may have been like a news report. It may have not have been like we like we think of a song at all. It may have been a news report. Hey, this is going on, or that's going on. Let's spread the story around. But um, either way, uh, mammals 
many of them have very complex languages, but humans are the only ones with this uh, this this capability to even to make up new words. You know, we have words that uh, we invent new things or we describe new situations or scenarios, and and we can just um, bring new words into the language to describe those things. And this is pretty amazing when you think about it. But it's all dependent upon those words um, having specific definitions and us being able to communicate these complex thoughts to one another on, uh, you know, with a commonness of understanding what these words are. And this is the very reason why the, the faithful followers of the state will do everything they can to distort certain words. I think I talked about this yesterday, how, how followers of the state will, will distort uh, things like, you know, uh, libertarian, anarchy, liberty, uh, you know, freedom. Uh, they will distort these words specifically so that, we, um, so that we have a harder time communicating them because as more and more people grasp these concepts, and as more and more people begin to see the state for what it really is, well, what's the effect? I, and, I, and I'm repeating myself from yesterday. But, of course, the effect is that people will open their eyes to the religion of the state. And as soon as they see that, they have a tendency to reject it. When people can get the glimpse of what the state really is, that it is this horrible, evil monster of a religion, when they see that for what it really is, it's eye-opening. And it's, uh, it can be quite shocking to people. So for that reason, the faithful follower, followers of the state, whether they realize it or not, whether it's, a, whether it's a, um, an intentional thing or not, they tend to distort these words like anarchy or, or liberty or libertarian or whatever. Um, they'll distort it whenever possible. So, I think I read this yesterday, but I'm going to read it again real quick anyway. Murray Rothbard called libertarianism the subject of moral theory that deals with the proper role of violence in, in social life. And, of course, he's talking about government, that, um, you know, government is a, is a monopoly, is a regional monopoly on violence. That's, what, how, that's even how uh, Barack Obama defined government as a regional monopoly, or at least the attempt at a regional monopoly on violence. Of course, it's never successful at that. Um, because, you know, uh, the gov government can't do anything successfully. Even even the very thing that defines what government is, it, it can't do that one thing successfully. If it could, if it could, it might have some legitimate, there might be some legitimate argument for government. If, if government could successfully control and, and hold a monopoly on violence within a geographical region, then it might be that you could at least begin to make the argument that government is legitimate. But the one thing that is the very definition of government is something it is, it's impossible for it to accomplish. So, uh, hmm. Okay, but anyway, uh, let's go on from there. Now, um, Murray went on to say that what a person does with his or her life is vital and important, but simply irrelevant to libertarianism. And I, I want to make this distinction because 
Um, well, here's a good example of, of, of how this takes place. There was a situation, I think, a couple of years ago where, uh, you know, it was one of those times where a lot of people are, are talking about the, uh, the, the issue of gay marriage and should the government define what is and what isn't a marriage and should marriage be defined as this or should marriage be defined as that. And, and, uh, and, and so often when these topics come up, very religious people... As people who sometimes are otherwise, you know, quite libertarian, will say somehow that the government should be the one making the decision as to what is and what isn't marriage. Somehow, one of the most important things, and and the and and this person will admit to that. The person making this argument will say that marriage is one of the most important things in society. It holds society together, and they'll say all these things in defense of their position. And then they'll say, that's why government has to define what marriage is. Now, this very oftentimes is the same person who will tell you that government can't do anything right. Or the same person who will who will be upset because the government's trying to ban guns or the government's trying to, you know, overtax or overregulate. Or they see that the government's flawed in doing those things, and yet they want to trust the government by, uh, to define what is and what isn't marriage. I, this is so backwards. Like, like the government's going to fail at everything else it's done, even failing on the very definition of what it is to be a government. They can't even accomplish that. But you want to trust them with defining what marriage is? How about this? How about if you define what marriage is for you and don't worry about anybody else? Because like Murray said, what a person does with his or her life is vital and important, but it's simply irrelevant to libertarianism. You see, when the government get in, gets involved in this, whatever the decision is, I'm using marriage as an example, but it doesn't matter what, what the topic is. When government get in, gets involved, it only has one option that it can use to enforce uh, what you know, whatever it is that it's dealing with, and that's violence. That's its only option. It can steal from you, uh, or it can beat you, or it can cage you. And if it's stealing from you, it's only successful at stealing from you because if you try to resist, it'll beat you, or shoot you, or cage you. So this is the only thing the government can do. The only tool in the government's toolbox is violence, a theft being an aspect of violence. So if that's the only thing that it can do, why do you want that to be the thing that government wants to use to control marriage? It, it, how is this? How do you justify this in your mind? So it's better to say, okay, then it's not the government's role. It is not the government's role to bring violence into a situation. I think Dan Stanhope, Dan, Dan Stanhope? Whatever the comedian's name is, I'm sorry if I butcher his name. I'm sure he'll never hear this podcast anyway, so if you don't tell him, I won't tell him. Anyway, Doug, Doug Stanhope, that's his name. So Doug Stanhope says this, he's like, and I'll clean up the language because we're on the radio and I tend not to use this kind of language, but anyway, Doug says um, something to the effect of uh, like uh, like he's a man and a woman are talking and he's like, baby, this is so wonderful. This relationship that we have is just so great. You and I got to get some attorneys involved. We got to get a judge talking about this. We have to have some law involved. And, and that's the mentality. Why would you want government involved in marriage? Do they not kill enough people that you need to bring their violence into this topic as well? Uh, 
anyway, okay, so let's take this back. So socialism. So so now we're gonna uh, we're gonna have socialism be involved in marriage. We're gonna let the a democracy decide what is and what isn't marriage. Well, that's great as long as you as long as the democracy as long as the socialism is on the side that you want them to be on. But what if um, what if one more child is born to the other side, and now there's a 51% majority to the other side, and the government then decides that marriage is defined as me beating you in the face with a hammer? What what about that? What if government decides that me beating you in the face in the with in the face with a hammer is now marriage, because 51% of the public decided that? Are you going to say, oh, it's a good thing we've got government defining marriage for us? You see, words can't be based on on that kind of definitions. You can't allow uh, a consensus to decide what words are. Words have a meaning, and if, and, and if we stick with that meaning, then we can all communicate with each other. But if we change that meaning uh, just willy-nilly according to what the, what the crowd wants, then we're slowly losing the ability to communicate, to communicate complex information to one another. We're setting ourselves up to be dumb slaves. So let me take this back to what I was going to say with what happened on Facebook a couple of years ago with this person. So, uh, so the argument was about um, whether or not the government should define marriage. And I made the statement something along the lines of, um, you know, if a, if a man wants to marry three women, a goat, and a tree, it's none of the government's business. And somebody really got upset about that. It was, uh, you know, using, uh, using Facebook terminology, it was a friend of a friend. It was somebody who uh, that I was friends with on Facebook commented or liked or whatever the statement and then a friend of theirs saw it and was offended and aghast and was like ah um and they they were their their point was um uh you can't conf- you should know better than this you can't confuse uh libertarianism with libertine and and actually that's what they were doing uh you know uh, libertine to be libertine is in a sense and I'm going to I'm going to give it a bad definition here for because of my own uh flaws and so forth but basically the libertine point of view is that uh anything I do is good by the sheer fact that I'm doing it so for example if I want to um uh, uh I want to uh, do something that no mo- that most people would think horribly immoral um well if I'm doing it and I believe that I'm right then according to the libertine i'm right i i'm doing what i want to do so uh so the libertine philosophy has been used to justify the behavior of people like the marquis de sade and so forth like this now what the libertarian what distinguishes the libertarian from the libertine is the libertarian looks at the at the at this guy who's doing freakish behavior that's uh, that you know most of moral society will be aghast at his libertine lifestyle and the liber- the, the libertarian looks at that and says well is he harming anybody else and if the answer is no then it's none of my business it's none of government's business, and it's none of your business. That doesn't mean I approve of this freak's behavior. It just means it's none of my business, and it's none of your business, and it's none of government's business. It's his own business. And, you know, laws of the market, or if we want to get um, 
if we want to go all Herbert Spencer on somebody and we want to talk about that, uh, you know, let's just say we have this libertine person here who has this bizarre uh, behavior that most people are aghast at. I can't even think what that would be, but let's assume that, the, that we have this bizarre behavior. Well, if it's really that bad, uh, as, and we're assuming that he's not harming anyone else with his behavior, uh, and he's not aggressing on you. Let's say it that way. He's not aggressing on anyone. Harm is a different topic altogether. I shouldn't have used that. I should have used the word aggressing. He's not aggressing on anyone. Um, so then none of us have the right to interfere with his uh, libertine ways. Well, uh, thinking in, in the way that um, Herbert Spencer might might put this, if if his behavior is really all that bad, then um, it will sort of, uh, I hate to use the word, but it will sort of evolve out of the marketplace. Um, he'll let, Let's say the behavior he's doing is extremely dangerous. Let's say he likes to bungee cord jump, except right when he starts to bungee cord, he randomly slashes at the cord with a knife, not knowing whether he's going to cut through or not, just a random slash at the knife, with, with the knife. Well, we might say, that's crazy. What are you doing? But... Um, if his action is only going to harm himself, then eventually, some way, he'll be eliminated from the gene pool, if we can put it that way. Uh, eventually, he'll take care of himself. Or eventually, other people will watch him and go, what an idiot. He's cutting at the, at the cord before he jumps. What a nut. And they won't do it. Or they will do it because they're the kind of person who is more inclined to follow that kind of behavior and eventually, they're all worked out of the gene pool. You know, all those people are. So, so one way or the other, as long as he's not aggressing on anyone else, still, still not our business. Uh, not your business, not my business. Uh, when I get back from this break, I'm going to take this away from the libertine and his bizarre behavior. And I'm going to talk about the Puritan who can't handle the thought of the libertine doing something that uh, that is a, that, that's a, against moral fiber and against what we believe. I'll be right back, folks. Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom is a collection of courses on history and Austrian economics. There are video and audio files you can download, you can participate in the discussion boards, and there are live sessions with Tom Woods and the other educators. Join Tom and his team, and they'll equip you with one of the very best tools the Liberty Movement has to offer, knowledge. And you can get all this for just $99 a year. Go to badquaker.com, click on the banner for Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom, and by using this link, you'll let Tom know that I sent you, and you'll help badquaker.com. Thank you. Did you know author Taryn P. Lupo has a new novel out called One Nation Under Blood? When a rejuvenative blood technology is developed that pits the young against the old, the government must take firm steps to address the war of supply and demand brewing across generational lines. Blood is not the only thing bought and sold in this dystopian tale of technology, economics, and independence. Vampires are now very real, but we never expected them to wear our grandmother's best Sunday dress. Okay, now I promised before the break that I was going to talk about uh, about Puritans. So let's let's th let's just recoup a recoup no recap. <laughs> Let's just recap that the, the, the libertarian doesn't necessarily approve of the libertine. The libertarian just says, as long as he's not aggressing on anyone else, it's just none of your business, and it's none of my business, and it's certainly none of the government's business. 
So, so that's not an approval. By, by saying, leave him alone, it doesn't mean you're approving of him. It just means um, that you should leave him alone. He's, he's not aggressing on anyone. Therefore, his behavior is not your business. Now, I want to contrast that with, um, with the Puritan. The Puritan, of course, the proper definition of the word Puritan is a, a religious group of people that were um, essentially it was a religious movement that came out of England about the same time that the Quakers uh, uh, developed in, in, in around the same time frame. And I've often said that, in a, in a very real way, Quakerism developed as a response to the fanaticism of uh, of the uh, of the Puritans. Uh, the Puritans were people who very strongly believed in the state. They very strongly believed that the state was an acceptable, an acceptable, an acceptable mechanism to use to inflict their beliefs upon humanity. They were fanatical Christians, and when I say fanatical Christians, that doesn't necessarily mean they followed Christ. They certainly didn't follow Christ. They, but they, um, they used Christianity as an excuse, and they used the Bible as an, their their translation, their interpretation of the Bible as an excuse to inflict their will upon people. But when you really boil down the Puritan theology to its core, it was really about dominance. It was really about a small group of people getting control of government and then dominating everyone else and force using the force of government to force everybody to behave the way they decided was moral. And now that's just statism. That's that's not Christianity in the least. That's not even remotely similar to Christianity. But that's what they called it. That's what they labeled it. And uh, and that's what they inflicted upon people. And so um, so this was the Puritan of old. And you know, eventually, as a as a doctrine, Puritanism faded and eventually collapsed. But it influenced so many other aspects of religion, so many specifically Christianity, so many other branches of Christianity were polluted by this horrible, evil Puritan um, theology. And uh, you know, I mentioned the Baptists earlier, and and I want to say this without. I'm not trying to offend any individual Baptist, but unfortunately the Baptist uh, doctrines are heavily influenced by the Puritan uh, doctrines. And this started happening uh, in the early 1800s when the Baptist movement in the United States really sparked, really caught on, and really started moving into places like the South and Appalachia, and 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 you know revival meetings started taking place, and Baptist uh, doctrines were spreading very quickly. But unfortunately. Um, the documentation that they used, the old sermons that they would dig up and use, were very often Puritan sermons and Puritan documentation and Puritan theology. So much of the Baptist theology is based on Puritanism, unfortunately. And I, I don't mean to just be picking on the Baptist because this has infected many other uh, branches of Christianity as well. But um, but because there's so many Baptists and because the the more positive aspects of the Baptist belief were very appealing and they caught on widely throughout the 1800s, because of that, Baptists are you know very common in the United States. And unfortunately, one of the aspects of Baptist doctrine is Puritanism. And, um, and so, you know, H.L. Mencken once said that Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. 
And, you know, H.L. Mencken had a way with words, and, and he liked to put things in ways that were cute like that. And, and that is a, a kind of a neat thing to say. It's a good, it's a good jab at somebody. But really, the, the core idea of Puritanism that bled over into the Baptist and that bled into the, the prohibition movement and gave us the current war on drugs and gives us ridiculous things like, um, you know, um, the uh, uh, the breathalyzer checks that they where cops stop people and and try to see if they're uh, if there's alcohol involved in their driving or and all these things are all based on the same mentality that people's behavior should be controlled by government that people's morality should be dictated to them by the government this all comes from a from a puritan root um, and it's in my opinion, it is the single most destructive and evil thing in American culture. This this Puritan root that has infected America starting right from its beginnings, right from its earliest times, um, this Puritan idea that somehow someone else's behavior, whether it physically affects you or not, even if they're totally isolated from you, this idea that's in the minds of, of these Puritans, when they, when, you know, they've, they've decided in their mind that, let's just go back with the gay marriage thing, they've decided in their mind that homosexuality is bad. So if there are two people involving themselves in homosexuality locked in a room somewhere far away, and the Puritan, the Baptist, whatever, the Puritan doesn't know the, the two people involved, doesn't know that they're doing this horrible deed that the, that the Puritan is uh, objecting to, still somehow it affects the Puritan. Somehow it affects their ability to, uh, to bring this perfect religious society on the world if these two people are in private, um, not harming anybody else, just engaging in activity that the Puritan doesn't believe in, that the Puritan objects to. This idea that somehow that affects the Puritan is, um, is the very core of, you know, it's why busybodies exist. It's why, uh, it's why the nanny society exists. All the things that libertarians rail against um, all comes from this core, uh, this core Puritan uh, idea that somewhere, somehow, if someone is involved in activity that you don't approve of, that it's harming you somehow. That somehow it's your business. Somehow, somehow you have to make, you have to use violence in order to get those people to behave the way you want them to. And, um, and of course, how do we decide what these behaviors are? Well, uh, according to the Puritan, you know, uh, you have a small group of people who get together and, and think about it and talk about it, and they decide. Uh, well, guess what? Now we're to socialism, aren't we? We're right back to our root of socialism. We're, we're back to the point of where a small group of people can dominate others and use violence to inflict their will upon others. And a small group of people can decide what is good and what is bad. And it's not based on, on you know, aggression. It's not based on if someone's being harmed, if their property is being harmed, or if they're being aggressed on in some way. It's not based on that. It's what this small group of people decides is good and bad. It is, it is going all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve. It is, when, it is this knowledge of good and evil. It is when humanity decides to to take upon itself the ability to choose what is good and evil.
It is, it is when humans, rather than going by our nature, rather than going by natural law, rather than going on, on that which created us, whether that be eons of time and nature, or whether that be a creator God, or whether that be anywhere in between in the spectrum from, from, from the most pure evolutionary thought to the most pure theist thought, no matter what our origin is, we have built within us natural laws and natural understanding of what we should and shouldn't do. And this all boils down to an understanding of property and, and non-aggression, of the zero-aggression principle. And these things are natural to human beings. Uh, I've talked before about how there are natural laws that regulate... Um, well, I was talking about squirrels. There are natural laws that regulate squirrels. It doesn't matter. You know, I, I was in New Hampshire at Porkfest, and I'm watching the squirrels, in t- it just very intensely watching these squirrels to, to see if there's some difference in the way they behave as opposed to the squirrels in Ohio. And now here I am in South Alabama, and what am I doing? I'm, I'm watching squirrels. And the squirrels, universally, of, of what I have seen, and this there may be exceptions somewhere, but from what I have seen... Um, squirrels have certain property rights. If they're holding on to an object, they own it. But their their property rights end when they when they put the object down. So one squirrel will never come up to another squirrel and yank a nut out of its hands. It doesn't do that. It will never do that. I've never observed this happen. But if a squirrel puts a nut someplace and then leaves, it's fair game for any other squirrel. He has no ownership over it if he's not possessing it. Possession is 100% of the law to a squirrel. So, so this is a natural law for squirrels. There's nothing immoral about stealing. Well, you're not stealing it. Uh, if a squirrel creates a stash spot and puts his nut in that stash spot, there is nothing immoral about another squirrel coming along and finding that and taking it. And, and here's another thing about squirrels. There's no such thing as capital punishment to squirrels. No, at no point in time have I ever observed a group of squirrels decide that one squirrel must die, and then they all fall upon that one squirrel and kill him. I've never observed that once, and I've never heard of anyone observing such a thing. And now contrast that to starlings. Starlings will very, they, they have no, no property rights whatsoever. A starling has no right of property. A starling can literally have food in his mouth and another starling will come up and yank it out of his mouth and there's not even a fight over it. There is, there's not even any indication that the first starling is upset. There's no way to see in any way that that starling is upset about having food literally taken out of his mouth by another starling. However, there's capital punishment. Um, there are hard rules in a flock of starlings, and if one starling breaks that rule or breaks those rules, the other starlings will fall upon that starling very quickly and beat it to death. They will peck it to death. They will kill it. And, and then they just go right on about their business. They walk around the dead starling like it's not even there. Because capital punishment is natural to starlings. It is, a, it is part of natural law to starlings. So each species has specific natural laws that are hardwired into the brains of those species. Now you look at a human. You look at a human baby, the smallest human baby, the newborn human baby grasps at things. His little hand or her little hand. 
will reach and grasp at things. And this natural behavior causes uh, the ability for that, for that newborn baby to understand how to nurse. Without that natural capability, the newborn baby would not know how to feed himself. So the newborn baby, that desire to grasp and to hold on to things, and, and, um, and, and this translates into the ability of the newborn baby to, uh, to nurse. And so now we come to property rights. If you don't think that, it, that a baby is born with an understanding of property rights, try to detach it before it's done nursing. Or if a little baby, if you put your finger or, or if you put a toy or you put a, anything down where a little baby can grasp it and it grasps onto it with its hand, it will grasp it as long as it has an interest in it. And if you attempt to take that away from the baby, no matter what it is, the baby recognizes that its property rights are being violated and it will object. It will object quite vocally. And, um, and so we see that it's natural to human beings Property is natural to human beings, and so we can discern. discern discur- <laughs> we can we can discover from this that that natural that that property is natural to human beings, and and now we go to aggression. Of course, it's better for humans to cooperate than to aggress. And in many cases, non-aggression has to be taught to children because their desire for property is so great that they'll overcome that natural tendency uh, to respect one another's property. And so we have to teach non-aggression to children. But they come by this very quickly if you're consistent. If you're not consistent with non-aggression and property, then the child will become inconsistent and become out of control. But if you're consistent in, 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 portray, in treating the child with the non-aggression principle and with property and with an understanding of property rights, then the child will also respond to that likewise. So these are natural to human beings. But back to the Adam and Eve story, when mankind, when a small group of mankind, specifically when one man or a committee of men decides that they can take it on themselves to decide what is and what is not law, when they, have, when they say to themselves, I have the knowledge of good and evil, I will decide what is good and what is evil, and then I will inflict that upon other human beings. The moment you do that, you have created the concept of the state. When you believe that that is good, you've created the, the God of the state. You've created a whole new creator for you to worship. You've created a whole new God. When you decide in your mind that it's legitimate, it is good, it is proper for a small committee of people to decide what is moral and what is good and inflict that upon other human beings, then you've taken that fruit off the tree of good and evil the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you've consumed that. You've taken it into yourself. You've made it a part of you. When you eat fruit, the fruit goes into your body, and a good portion of that fruit actually becomes a part of your body. So when you take the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and you pluck it from the tree of of knowledge of good and evil, and you consume it, it becomes a part of you, and it becomes inside you, and it becomes that which keeps you going. And that's the religion of the state. And that's what we have to reject and that's socialism that's 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 puritanism folks thanks for listening today 
And remember to visit badquaker.com. And remember, we do have a forum, and we've got a lot of you know a lot of members. It's growing and growing and growing. You can go there and express your feelings, and you can talk to other other listeners. So get over to badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much for listening today, folks.